Good afternoon. My name is Martha Gill. In the 21st century, we are still struggling to understand the cruel legacies of slavery. Sadia Hartman's book, Lose Your Mother, will perhaps be of great help to us in that struggle. Hartman traveled to Ghana to investigate the vestiges of slavery which still linger there even today. And our reviewer, Michelle Commander, knows something about that setting. She spent the academic year of 2012 and 13 as a Fulbright lecturer and researcher at the University of Ghana, where she also conducted her own research. She's come to the University of Tennessee's English department to teach English and Africana with her PhD in American Studies and Ethnicity from the University of Southern California. Please welcome Michelle Commander to talk to us today about Lose Your Mother. Um, it is a pleasure to be here with you all this afternoon to discuss Sadia Hartman's fascinating book, Lose Your Mother. I intend to provide some background and an overview of the text, along with what I find to be some of the major questions that come up in the text from Hartman that will help us think through this very tough subject of slavery as U.S. citizens and U.S. residents. Uh, Sadia Hartman is a professor of English at Columbia University, where she teaches African-American and American literature courses on cultural history, slavery, law and literature, and performance studies. She received her PhD from Yale University in 1992. Her first book, called Scenes of Subjection, which I find to be a very remarkable examination of the violence inherent in everyday slave life. It looks at different kinds of scenes from slave life, such as dancing in the slave quarters and antics on the minstrel stage, to think through how these moments also contain terror. Lucia Mother is quite different from that text. It's not as analytical as her first but it is very important to understanding the dispossession that black Americans feel in our society today. In an NPR interview from January 2007, Hartman stated that the title Lose Your Mother is about the loss that was produced for the people of the African diaspora. She says, to lose your mother is about losing your identity, your language, your country, and that's the way they speak of it in West Africa. So it's about those losses that haunt us, those ancestors who we know but can't name. We feel their presence, but they're without names for us, end quote. So I thought that I could give you a little bit of background as to how I came to this book in 2006. So the book came out around 2006, 2007, which happened to be the very time that I was about to go out to Ghana to conduct my official ethnographic research on a very similar subject. <laughs> so imagine a very lowly graduate student freaking out because Sadia Hartman, of all people, has composed a very beautifully written text on similar subjects to what I did. 
my first trip to Ghana was in 2005. I went with a friend there for a month, and I experienced what Sadia Hartman experienced during her first trip in 1996, basically. When she goes there in 1996, as just a regular cultural roots tourist, she felt like Ghana was a paradise. It was a very utopic space. It was very moving for her to be in a place where there were people who looked like her, who were at all levels of the government and professional capacities and so forth. And she was moved by the experience to sort of be able to be in a place that her ancestors may have come from. But that's not what the book is about. (laughs) The book is more about her second trip where she was a Fulbright scholar in Ghana in 1997. And the challenges that she experienced in kind of finding kinfolk as she thought she had experienced that year prior. And so what she's talking about throughout the text are the breaches that occurred during that time. Now, I'm telling you all that because that's how she front loads the book. Her book is not written in a chronological fashion so that we get to the end and we're disappointed alongside her that things didn't work out the way she thought they would. She tells us at the very beginning that she was not able to make the kinds of connections that she thought she would. But then she takes us through a lot of historical material, social, political commentary, and so forth to really get us thinking about what slavery means to black Americans, some black Americans, maybe not all, and also what slavery really means to Ghanaians who have all of these vestiges in their country. I should say that At the University of Tennessee, I do teach this book in a course that's um, called English 443. I teach it as Contemporary Imaginings of Slavery in Black American Nonfiction, Fiction, and Film. So we talk about slavery and trauma the entire semester, and it's my most highly rated class. And the students do not leave depressed, as you might think that they do. (laughs) It's actually fun, dare I say. Um, It's it's actually very nice because I I think one of the things that happens in our country is that we're so ashamed of our history of slavery that we don't talk enough about it. And we don't talk enough about the reverberations that may be occurring in our society. And the students are very happy to be able to be in a safe space to talk about these kinds of things. And honestly, they're also kind of perturbed that they didn't get a lot of that history in grade school or in high school, and they're very happy to to get it, even if it's their junior or senior year in college. So to talk a little bit about the book, the genre of this book is that of a travel narrative. Now, when I call it a travel narrative, you may automatically think about great adventure stories, explorations, and so forth, but this book is not the traditional kind of travel narrative, which Typically or historically, the kind of book that was written by a male of European descent who definitely had a lot more mobility than women or people of color at that time. So in this text, uh, we have a black American woman who is recounting her search for connections to Africa. It is a personal memoir that almost reads as a lamentation. It is full of yearning, as expressed in beautifully written passages, and it tugs at the heartstrings. The tone of the text works for a lot of readers, 
But others, it does not work so well because it does have a sort of mournful tone. And depending on what the reader expected at the outset, that might not sit too well for them. So I did a casual search online to see how people were talking about the tone of the text. And some people were expecting when they saw it that it would be historical, right? They didn't want to hear all the boohoo crying, right, that they accused the text of. But it, it raised some questions for me. What does it mean for one to want to solely read accounts of transatlantic slavery that do not contain emotion? What does it imply to want to have the bare facts rather than thinking through how this system that ended in the U.S. around 1865 may have had other iterations or still impact people in different kinds of ways? Why can't we talk about the emotions? The book also includes historical material, as I've mentioned, and sociopolitical commentary, and there are very interesting moments at which Hartman interjects speculations about the past and futures for some of the enslaved persons who appear briefly in historical records with little background. Um, and these are people who get lost in the void of slavery's very limited archives. So you may have a slave trader who's journaling, and he's writing about one of the slave women who became belligerent. And Sadia Hartman, basically, in, in one instance, she's talking about a, something that happened on the ship, the recovery, where a slave woman was being belligerent. She was strung up, stripped naked, beaten to death, um, kind of uh, strung up like um, a sail. Um, and she, she thinks through what that person might have been experiencing at that time. So what she's trying to do in this text is to give some humanity back to these slaves who go unnamed. Sometimes she names the slaves. And she tries to imagine how they're feeling in that moment. That occurs two or three times within a text. And those are very, I think, beautiful moments where she is writing this sort of nonfiction memoir. But then she goes into fiction as a, a process of kind of grieving um, the loss of these people who are seen as, as dispensable and as, as chattel. All right, I have some images of slave castles just to give you an idea of what they look like. They were fortresses, really. Um, I've done research in Ghana almost for eight years. I, I, from 2005 to 2013, I was in Ghana at various times doing research that included following around various tour groups and listening to how the, the tour guides would change the narrative depending on who was listening so I would listen to groups. I would try to align myself with groups that were all European, <laughs> Europeans, um, or all black Americans, like show myself like I'm with them. <laughs> um, but there was also a time where I really made a tour guide mad, and I, I did ask that he take me around by myself. But some things really happened there, and I write about it in my, in my book. So I've done a lot of research there that kind of complements what Sadia Hartman talks about in her text, so I can't. I am able to answer some questions that you may have a little later. What you're seeing are the upper decks. So it's grand, it's majestic. You can imagine how beautiful they are. We, you know, during the tour, you go up to the, the very top of the slave castle and you can see the Atlantic Ocean. It's beautiful, it's gorgeous. You would understand why someone would want that space. But the terror, right, is what went on beneath the slave. Um, castle. And I should say that one of the things that 
collects the most gasp uh, during the tours is the fact that there is in every slave castle a church, right? Along with prisons, along with places where women were selected to be raped and things like that. But there, there was a lot of religion surrounding the space where a lot of this stuff was going on. We have cannons to protect the slave castle. You see that at every slave castle that is still existing because Europeans were constantly fighting over possession of these castles because there were a lot of things that people wanted to trade in over the years before slavery even happened. Um, so the, the slave castles in Ghana switched hands between Dutch, Portuguese, British, um, and so forth. This is the interior of a slave dungeon. Archaeologists went to the slave castles in Ghana in the 1970s and actually took the top layer, the top layer, of, of what, was, what was there on the floor and found skin tissue, feces, urine, and so forth from the slaves. So that stuff is still there. So when you're touring, you feel as if it's dark, it's dank, it's hot, it's miserable, you can kind of understand the conditions that they experienced marginally, but just think of a room that has 1,500 captives in it, women having their, men their menstrual cycles, they have to, you know, there's no bathroom, there's no toilet, people dying, people with disease, and so forth. Um, it was just a, a horrible, horrible time. And this is what Sidia Hartman wants to go back to, to see how people have preserved slavery in Ghana. And of course she comes to some what are devastating conclusions for herself. This gentleman that's in this picture, he actually was a tour guide, but there is a person who sits guard of the castle and he has, you know, these various kinds of offerings to ancestral gods. You can see some uh, animal skins there and some alcohol and some other things there. Um, as well. Just entrances to the slave dungeon. There's a plaque from when President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama traveled to Ghana in 2009. Ghana was the first sub-Saharan country that President Obama visited because it is seen as a model of democracy in Africa. It's a relatively peaceful country. In some ways, I suppose he wanted to reward them for what they have achieved in Ghana. And so that was the first sub-Saharan African nation that he went to. And I actually was there at that time. That's me. <laughs> Just looking. One of my friends captured me looking um, in, into the ocean. I was tr actually trying to rig my iPod to record the sound of the ocean because I cannot explain to you how loud it sounds in that very space. And Sadia Hartman talks about the sort of sonic atmosphere of the surrounds of the slave castle dungeon. It's haunting and it does feel like there's something in there, like it's some ghostly kind of thing there that is very kind of enchanting. Okay, so I have what I want to call a series of topics and questions that Sadia Hartman addresses in the book that I think would be ripe for discussion later on. I should say that Sadia Hartman decides to travel to Ghana because of her 
project about slavery memorialization, right? So there was actually a project. It just wasn't about her personal need. It was about her academic project. But as a black American who felt a particular way about slavery, it also was a time for her to to try to assuage the different feelings that she had about any kind of social alienation and dispossession and a sense of statelessness that she felt within the U.S. Um, She says that she wishes to reclaim the dead. She feels as if those people who were kidnapped or sold into slavery were people who were seen as strangers and that she, she was so curious about why no one was looking for them, why no one was mourning for those people. And she set out to perform that task. She also outlines in a the forefront of the book that there are more dungeons, prisons, and slave pens in Ghana than any other West African nation, and there are also nine slave routes in the country that she wanted to trace. She wanted to go to those vestiges, see what was left, see how they were being memorialized, and so forth. So how does she come to even think about slavery? If I said that my students today in 2015 don't get a whole lot about slavery in grade school or high school, how did Sadia Hartman, who must have been maybe her 20s or 30s um, at the time that she's traveling there in 1997, how was that she came to slavery as something that was kind of at the forefront of her mind? Well, her parents, her mother's side of the family was from Montgomery, Alabama, and her father's side of the family was from Curacao in the Caribbean. Her family from the Caribbean did not talk a whole lot about slavery at all, but her great-grandfather, Moses, put the idea of Africa into the head of Sadia, and she often saw, or she saw, I should say, that he was very upset by the fact that there wasn't a whole lot that he knew about his family. Sadia Hartman says that even when trying to trace her family tree, Everything stops around 1820. There's not a whole lot that she can do as a black American because there's not a whole lot that exists in the historical record or in oral narratives from the family. And that's talking about a whole other sort of a long line of of records just not being kept for whatever reason, of, of keeping records about the slaves one possesses but not attaching a name to it. Right? So just saying we have 23 female slaves um, and not being able to trace that lineage. So for her, 1820 is where things stop as far as her family. So what she says about this is that slavery felt like something that was part of me, but not me at the same time. So it's something that haunted her over time, something that she felt as if had significance to her contemporary moment, but she was unsure of how early on in her life. She says that she went to Catholic school and she did not learn anything about slavery there. One time she was wearing two Afro puff ponytails and her teacher called her an African princess and all the the kids laughed at her. So there were some negative stereotypes attached to being African or being from that place, but she ended up rejecting those things later on in her life. During her sophomore year of college, she recounts that she changed her first name from Valerie, which was respectable, to Sadia, right? In a kind of pan-African 
gesture in a way for her to sort of have a piece of Africa for herself and to identify and name herself for herself kind of in um, kind of angst uh, to her parents, right? So she she's a probably a teen, early teenager, or sorry, late teenager, and um, she goes in, in, in that way. All right, so I'm going to read a good bit from the text, not all the stuff that's here. I'm not going to kidnap all of you and make you listen to me read the whole book. All right, so what she says in the text about black Americans, and, and she is speaking in a general fashion, right? So I shouldn't say that Sadia Hartman speaks for every black American that you will ever come across, right? But she's speaking in generalities here. And she says, the transience of the slave's existence still leaves its traces in how black people imagine home as well as how we speak of it. We may have forgotten our country, but we haven't forgotten our dispossession. It's why we never tire of dreaming of a place that we can call home, a place better than here, wherever here might be. It's why 100 square blocks of Los Angeles can be destroyed in the evening. We stay there, but we don't live there. Okay, when she says we may have forgotten our country, she's not saying we've somehow forgotten the United States. She means we have not been able to know anything about our ancestral homelands. Okay, we may not know what that place is, but we understand that we are disconnected from it. We don't possess, um, or we don't know that we possess at least, the cultural retentions from that place and so forth. We've lost the language. So back to the question on the screen. The first of her major points in the book then is what does it mean to be an American who was included, who was excluded, and what role does slavery play in how black Americans have been ushered in or kept in the margins of our society? As I've mentioned, she weaves in this kind of sociological commentary throughout this text, and she sets up this comparison between what it means to be an outsider within the U.S., and what it means to be an outsider, as she finds, in her motherland or homeland, which is imagined, in Ghana. And I'm going to read a good bit here, which is, again, a good thing, I think. When the book opens, she talks about the attack that she feels as soon as she, her bus stops in Elmina, Ghana. And she basically says that as soon as a group of Ghanaian children see her, they start yelling at her, Obruni, 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 laughing and giggling. And Obruni is a word that means stranger, white man, foreigner, and so forth. So you can imagine that a black American going to Ghana would not want to be called those things. I'm not white. What are you talking about? We look alike. You're my brother. You're my sister. And these kids are saying, no, no, no. We can tell by how, you, how you're dressed. You're walking very fast, so you must be American, or you're just not from here. <laughs> um, we can tell that you do not belong here. And for a lot of black American tourists, when that moment happens, it's jarring, because everything else that leads up to that point with cultural roots tourism tells you how much 
People have been longing for you to come back. They're so happy to have you here. My brother, my sister, we love you. Using those those kinship kind of ruses. And, but when you're called a stranger or a white man or a foreigner, it can kind of attack you in a particular way. And so that's what Sadia Hartman starts her text with. And she says, Obruni forced me to acknowledge that I didn't belong anyplace. The domain of the stranger is always an elusive elsewhere. I was born in another country where I also felt like an alien and which in part determined why I had come to Ghana. I had grown weary of being stateless. Secretly, I wanted to belong somewhere, or at least I wanted a convenient explanation of why I felt like a stranger. And she goes on to talk about why it is she wanted to engage with the past in Ghana, how slavery happened, and how we assign blame for the slave trade and so forth. And I'll just read some of that, too, just to give some background there. And she says, the most universal definition of the slave is a stranger, torn from kin and community, exiled from one's country, dishonored and violated, the slave defines the position of the outsider. She is a perpetual outcast, the coerced migrant, the foreigner, the shame-faced child, and the lineage. Contrary to popular belief, Africans did not sell their brothers and sisters into slavery. They sold strangers, those outside the web of kin and clan relationships, non-members of the polity, foreigners and barbarians at the outskirts of their country, and lawbreakers expelled from society. In order to betray your race, you had to first imagine yourself as one. The language of race developed in the modern period in the context of the slave trade. And she goes on to say that slavery was derived from the word Slav because Eastern Europeans were the slaves of the medieval world. And she goes on to say after that, it was not until the 16th and 17th centuries that the line between the slave and the free separated Africans and Europeans and hardened into a color line. So she's making that distinction between who exactly was sold during this time. A lot of times when you hear about slavery, a good comeback to pe- anyone who's talking about slavery and complaining about it or, or, is being, or seen as talking about it is, well, your people sold you. Well, the idea here is that, no, strangers were sold. It wasn't your people. It may have been prisoners of war from various tribal wars, but people who saw themselves as kin did not sell each other into slavery. Also, to address this question about what it means to be an American, she recounts a story that's often told in stories about Ghana's importance to black American travelers, tourists, and expatriates. And this is a story that occurred in 1957 when Kwame Nkrumah led the Gold Coast to its independence from the British, and the country then became what we know as Ghana. Okay, So for many centuries, Ghana was known as the Gold Coast, Once they achieved independence in 1957, they were um, indeed called Ghana. To represent the United States, Vice President Richard Nixon attended with a contingent of folks from the U.S. government, and he approached a group of black gentlemen, and he said, how does it feel to be free? And the men looked at him and they said, we wouldn't know. We're from Alabama. Now, that's where the story ends. We don't know if Vice President Nixon ended up red-faced and embarrassed or 
what happened at that time, but you can imagine how important what happened in Ghana was to the black American civil rights movement um, here in the U.S. And what Kwame Nkrumah, the president, ended up doing was inviting a lot of black American professionals from scientists to dentists, doctors, artists, political figures, and so forth, to help him build up a nation. You have this fledgling nation that needed the expertise of black people who were educated. They were trying to have this sort of pan-African vision. And when you think about pan-Africanism, it's thinking through this idea of uplifting black people wherever they are in the world. And they saw black Americans as the people who had the expertise to help Ghana build itself up. And so you had folks come through there like Maya Angelou, Julian Mayfield, W.E.B. Du Bois, um, and his wife Shirley Graham Du Bois actually founded the first television network there. And really helped them build up their nation. So Ghana, again, is very important to the freedom dreams that black Americans were dreaming during this time period and very important, too, to the morale of black people who were fighting for various forms of freedom throughout the world. The second thing that she addresses in this book is the silence about the history of slavery in the site of demise. And what I mean by that is, although she realized that Ghana had all of these remnants or these vestiges of slavery that existed, that were preserved either intentionally or unintentionally, she realized that people didn't really talk about slavery in Ghana, which may seem odd, because I just told you that lots of people go to Ghana and they go to the slave castle dungeons and so forth. But the everyday citizen, until recently, does not know a whole lot about the slave trade. Even if they live in Cape Coast, where there's this huge slave castle, or Elmina, where the same thing is true. She said that she had remembered Elmina, as I mentioned earlier, as a graveyard. And you can see how there's fishermen, there's marketplaces, everyday life has seemed to go on, and so forth. But she returns to this bustling place, and it, in a way, makes her very upset because she realizes that these people have not been educated about what happened in that space. Those people who may have been there, their families for 12, 13 generations or more, were not talking about slavery. And it bothered her that people had forgotten those people. So in what is chapter six, it's called So Many Dungeons, she charts out what is known of the history of the slave castle and thinks through what she finds in them. And she's very candid about what she finds in them, in fact. She starts off the chapter by saying that the historical record indicates that Africans thought that the white tradesmen were going to eat them. That's why they thought that the white Europeans were there. So cannibalism, she says, provided an allegory for usurping and consuming life. And I'm going to read to you what she says she finds in the Slave Castle Dungeon, remembering that the first time that she had traveled to Ghana, she did not see these things. And she says, human waste covered the floor of the dungeon. To the naked eye, it looked like soot. After the last group of captives had been deported, the holding cells were closed but never cleaned out. For a century and a half after the abolition of the slave trade, the waste remained. 
To control the stench and the pestilence, the floor had been covered with sand and lime. In 1972, a team of archaeologists excavated the dungeon and cleared away 18 inches of dirt and waste. They identified the topmost layer of the floor as the compressed remains of the captives, feces, blood, and exfoliated skin. I refused this knowledge. I blocked it out and proceeded across the dungeon as if the floor was just that and not the remains of slaves pressed further into oblivion by the soles of my feet. I came to this fort searching for ancestors, but in truth, only the base matter awaited me. Waste is the interface of life and death. It incarnates all that has been rendered invisible, peripheral, or expendable to history writ large. That is, history as the tale of great men, empire, and nation. It evokes a dull, ordinary horror of what is vile, worthless, and contemptible, a pile of shit. Excuse my French. Waste is the remnant of all the lives that are outside of history and dissolved in utter amnesia. The only part of my past that I could put my hands on was the filth from which I recoiled, layers of organic material pressed hard against a stone floor. She goes on to say that the castle contains a museum. This is true at Cape Coast Castle. It's not updated at all anymore. But she says that the castle museum itself does not tell the story of the slaves and their communities before they were plucked from the area. That's very curious because those same villages are still there. And what she's mourning is the fact that nothing exists or is expressed in the museum at least about the memory of these people being kidnapped or these people being missing from the genealogy. One of the things that Maya Angelou says in her travel narrative about Ghana, All God's Children Need Traveling Shoes, is that she was very jealous that the average Ghanaian could go back 12, 13, 14 generations talking about family members. So it would go to show that there should be some story, some, some tragic story about a family being ripped apart, but that kind of thing was not there. And it did not exist in the museum either. The museum did things, this is just from my recollection, they had a, a series on the mixed-race people of the area. So people who were descendants of European tradesmen. Um, <clears throat> they, they had things like the importance of Christianity, to the, to the space and how Christianity actually um, helped basically revive the place, save the heathens from themselves, and so forth. But the actual memory, exactly. They don't say it in that way. That's just me editorializing, by the way. <laughs> um, but, but that's basically the gist of it, a kind of celebration uh, of what Christianity did for the place and so forth. So she was upset about how slavery was not memorialized in the way that she thought that it should be. Again, very much mirroring how we don't talk about slavery within our society. I would say that she would argue that a lot of shame is attached to that. How, how could it be that we allow this to happen um, in, in, our, in our place, in, in, in our country? <clears throat> so she says that what she wanted to do is 
to fill something other than the bricks and lime of the slave castle walls or the floors. What she wanted to do was to reach through time and touch the prisoners. And a lot of what she wants to do when we're thinking about reality is, is, is not possible to do. She can't literally reach through and, and touch those people. Um, but what she does in the text, as I've mentioned before, is she tries to cobble together what she can from the historical record and record how things like how slaves march from the northern portion of Ghana all the way to the coastlines and, and things like that. So she's able to speculate about what that meant for these for this group of people. And just one last thing. Um, I was loitering in a slave dungeon less because I hoped to discover what really happened here than because of what lived on from this history. Why else begin an autobiography in a graveyard? So again, this book is a lamentation. The latter part of the book talks about Ghana's tourism industry, which draws about 10,000 black Americans to the country every year. Um, and it thinks through the various kinds of what I call kinship bruises that are used to make black Americans feel as if they have indeed come home. What she also does throughout the book early on, she talks um, about various expatriates who thought that they had indeed found this utopic space to be. And um, they found that Ghana is not perfect and they have been taken advantage of and, and things that could happen here happen there. Um, and they have not found home. There are people who, who do think that they found home, but she focuses in mainly on people who have not found home there. Okay. Okay, are there questions or comments? Yes. Uh, good afternoon. Sorry. I'm Daniel Brown, city councilman and former mayor here in Knoxville. Nice to meet you. I've had the opportunity to travel to Ghana twice in okay. 1996 mm -hmm. and also in 1998 and visited the campus of the University of Ghana. Right. Very beautiful campus. It is. I got two questions. One, your students, yes. did they have very much interest in slavery here in America? Secondly, Ghana's a one of the most stable nations mm -hmm. in West Africa and all of the continent, really. That's right. Mm -hmm. What do you attribute to their uh, stability there in okay. Ghana? Okay. Um, as for my students, the majority of them are very interested in slavery. And as I've mentioned, we, in that particular class, English 443, we talk about slavery the entire uh, semester. And um, I don't think I've mentioned the other texts. So if you're interested in, in reading more about slavery and thinking about how black American authors or filmmakers have, have, have been um, exploring slavery, some of the texts that I use include Toni Morrison's Beloved, which many of you have heard of, probably read, maybe even seen the film that wasn't so good. Um, <laughs> but we use that one. Um, if you're interested in books that are more sci-fi related, Octavia Butler's Kindred, is, it's a very accessible book. It was written in the 1970s, and what that book does is it sends a contemporary character back to the slave plantation on which her family was enslaved. My students love that book. I also use uh, Sankofa, Halajarima Sankofa, which you've probably seen, that came out in 93. This um, also takes a contemporary character back to the slave plantation. It's, it's a very good film. And I think a lot of you have probably seen 12 Years a Slave. I also use that in my course. And my students um, are very curious about slavery. Yes? Okay. 
My students, oh, oh, gosh, okay. Okay, the students in Ghana, all right, I taught the same class just about, it was a little bit different, the class was called something like um, Black Diaspora Literature or something like that. So I did teach Lose Your Mother, <laughs> and I taught Beloved, in, in, and that was very difficult. I taught that, and I have to say that they were very shocked about the atrocities that occurred, what happened here in the U.S. As I've mentioned, they had little clue as to what happened. Some of them grew up in Cape Coast and had not been to the slave castles. And so they were, very, again, very curious. I had one student who almost um, emailed me too much, but he started watching uh, YouTube videos about slavery <laughs> and just writing me these long, you know, long emails about what happened. But it was good. I, I felt very useful when I went there. I wasn't speaking to some choir. They were very hungry for that knowledge and what had happened, and they were very sad for it. Now, I will say, it still felt to me that they didn't feel like it's something that happened to them, but that it was something that happened to those people. And I really feel like, and this is one of the things I argue in my book, is that a lot of what we see in these post-colonial um, nations within West Africa and other places on the continent very much were caused by what happened with slavery. And I don't think people make that connection enough. It's not as if the ancestor that we talk about solely belongs to us, but that ancestor belongs to the people of Ghana. And I do feel like there was a bit... It wasn't intentional, but there was a way in which, again, that they felt as if they, they were sorry for it happening and they were upset that it happened, but it was not as if the pain um, belonged to them. And though we're talking about, you know, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, right, they're definitely Pan-Africanists in Ghana and other places in Africa who would feel very differently from that and definitely feel like those people were their ancestors. As I grew up, I heard a story of one of my mother's great-grandmothers being the product of a master and a slave. Oh, okay. So I had my DNA tested through family tree. Uh Mm -hmm. I have a whole family down in Greene County, Georgia, of Mm -hmm. blacks. And I also was a match with someone from Ghana. Oh, okay. And so through the Center of African-American Genealogical Research. Three Sundays ago, I was able to Skype with that guy. <laughs> yeah, a lot, of this, wow. yes. a lot of this is happening today. The science is very interesting. And like you say, I'm sitting here. I know all about these white ancestors. Uh-huh. So for the last three or four months, you know, I've been wondering, who is that ancestor with no name? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on DNA, and how do you mm-hmm. think it will affect mm-hmm. people's understanding um, mm-hmm. that we're all from the same person? <laughs> that is a very great question. I actually write about DNA testing. That's the topic of the conclusion of my book. Um, I also have done the DNA testing um, through 23andMe and Ancestry. And it's very interesting. The one thing that sticks out to me about the possibilities for DNA testing is that it has the potential to reconnect families. Even those families, let's say that a family was sent, they all went to, let's say, Haiti. 
And then part of the family was sold into the U.S. And then they were resold and resold and so forth. It has the potential, I think, if people start really thinking about their family tree, of repositioning people into families that were dispersed nonchalantly. Um, So I do see those possibilities. There's also a group of academics who think that DNA testing is dangerous because it could reaffirm what we think about racial eugenics and and science and and the negative things about, you know, black people have this bad thing about them or white people have this good thing about them. But I have found that a lot of people are more um, excited about the things that they find. Now, I'm very happy that you're happy about this Ghanaian ancestor. I will say that, and I joke with my friends about this all the time, I have to admit, that I have to giggle when I see, (laughs) usually they're white folks in the South who are posting on the forums and they're talking about their Cherokee grandma who had two braids. And then they do the DNA testing and they find that they're 4% African. They're like, what the hell is this? Excuse my language. (laughs) And they're not very happy like you are (laughs) about finding... (laughs) But yes, I I do think that it is an exciting development, what is going on with the DNA testing. And people are looking for those very close connections to the continent itself. I have to admit that I was excited when I got my DNA testing done for Ancestry.com and found out that I'm like almost 30% Malian. And I don't think people talk about Mali a lot with the slave trade, but that was very interesting for me. So I think it's a good way for people to really start thinking about our history and what what it means to be black in our country, what it means to have this kind of African ancestry and so forth. And and I do love the surprises when they happen. And again, I'm happy that you're happy (laughs) about your grenade. My book, I'm revising right now, and my book will be out next year, hopefully, from Duke University Press. Dr. Commander, Mm -hmm. thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.